you know, you hear about Lego and that company, which is a family business, and they do uh, attribute some of their success to being a family business because they're like, look, we had to figure it out because we couldn't quit. So there is there is something about being trapped that can create virtue and goodness, but not being a family and calling yourself one is a problem and creates yes. massive issues around if you want to be direct and honest and hold a high bar of performance. It's really tough. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the growing team here at Levels. We're a venture-funded startup backed by more than a thousand of our community members and some of the best VCs in the game, including Andreessen Horowitz. On this podcast, we talk about everything we do. We share the learnings about our culture and what we're building along the way. This is Inside the Company. When companies get to a mature stage, that being the scale-up stage, if you ask founders what they would go back and do differently, if anything at all, the number one thing that they say is culture. Culture is very hard to get right, and it's harder to get right the further down the roadmap you go. The further you scale, the more mature you come, the more market traction you get, the more team members that come on board. It's harder to go back and just design or implement culture. It has to be intentional, has to be built from the conditions that you create for everybody to align internally. And so Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, and Tim Kendall, one of the earliest employees at Facebook, also an investor in Levels, the two of them sat down and they talked about team culture and incentive alignment. How do you get everybody putting one foot in front of the other at the same time to build and scale the team? It was a really meaningful conversation around values and culture. Here's Sam. So I have a lot of questions for you mostly related to company culture. So some context on where we are, I would say that we're, we're bumping up against our third phase change of complexity. So I know that you've had, you've seen a lot of companies scale up and I'm sure you've seen process changes and culture changes as companies reach different phase changes. I, I was talking with my friend Sander Daniels, who's the founder of Thumbtack, mm -hmm. and he was saying that roughly every doubling, it is a different company, and you have to treat it like it's a totally different company. Mm. So you have to rethink every process, mm -hmm. every doubling. So we're, we're now at that doubling. And I imagine that's going to last until maybe 100. So what are, as you've seen companies scale, what are some of the cultural and procedural things you think we should be aware of? Well, I, you know, I like I like that model of, of at least saying, you know, at a doubling from whenever, you know, what, what, what we sort of believe to be true culturally about, you know, what was our ethos and what are the things that we want to keep versus change and, and what are the things we have to make sure endure. So I think that's critical. In my experience, it's very hard for the founder CEO not to basically mm -hmm be emblematic of the culture from employee one to a thousand, right? I mean, it, Amazon is still quite emblematic of, of Bezos, hmm. um, you know, work backwards, a bunch of these, 
these ways of thinking were, were you know, came from Bezos himself. Um, I think the directness of Amazon comes from Bezos himself. I think the competitiveness of Amazon comes from Bezos himself. I think, you know, one of the, one of the things in Amazon's leadership principles, which I love, it's one of my favorite values is in terms of assessing people is people are right often. Like they make, you know, good people have proven that they are good because they've made more right decisions than wrong decisions. And that, that is often not explicit in lots of companies. And so you get a lot of people who've made a whole series of shitty decisions and, and there's no one saying, or, or there doesn't seem to be accountability around the fact that like, hey, this guy's, all he does is make shitty decisions. Like, where's the accountability? Yeah, sure. So I do think that the founder is who the founder is and how the founder shows up in a lot of what they model ends up becoming the culture. That can shift because found, because people can change, not dramatically, but people can change for sure um, and, and evolve. And, and so your culture can evolve in that way. I'd say that's your biggest lever. I think your second biggest lever is your first 10 employees really are the bedrock. So how, whatever norms come from you deciding to bring those people on board and then the norms that will be established by virtue of them hanging out with one another for the first 90 to 180 days, that's going to be a big um, set point for, for culture. And then I haven't used the doubling thing, although I like it. Um, I think that for you, there's a threshold of when there were 10 people, you talked to all 10 people probably every day. You can't talk to 50 people one-on-one -on -one every day. Nope. So there's sort of these concentric circles start to get further away from you at the center. And so you have less, ironically, right? As you succeed, you have less control. And so also ironically, as the CEO, you become more in the influence business than in the mandate business because you have to win hearts and minds of your leaders and then they have to win hearts and minds of their teams. Um, and so I would say that, you know, when there are 10 of you, your channel, your communication channel is probably email and going over to their desk. When, In our case, we're fully remote, so there's no desks. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, but but in a, you could still probably accommodate ad hoc. I bet when there are 10 people, you're calling most of them. Maybe you're doing, maybe you have one-on-ones with all of them. Maybe you have stand-ups every day with all of them. That does That's not tenable at 50. Um, but what tools do you have? Well, you have your, you know, you do the end of week kind of um, rundown which is a huge thing that's going to scale really nicely. And, and you, by the way, can convey so many cultural norms through how you present that information and you do an awesome job. Cause, and, and one of the things I really love about it is that you not only you record it and then you actually send it to investors. So that we're, we're just like all, all of that sort of over communication and transparency reinforces alignment 
across all your constituents. You know all this because you're a, you've, you're a lifelong entrepreneur, and so you've probably learned hard lessons around when the yes. ethics alignment starts to happen. Um, in, in any case, you know, and and when you get to five hundred, that will still be a nice lever, um, but you won't be able to. You're not going to know everybody's name. You might get you might get there at a hundred. Yep. And and at five thousand, you're not going to be able to meet. 95% of the people who work at your company. Yeah. Um, one-on-one at least. And so you start to have to become creative in terms of communicating norms and ethos in scalable ways. And one of the things that um, I learned at Facebook from, from Mark you know, 2009, everyone thinks that Facebook was up and to the right. It was just easy, but actually, um, there were many points of reckoning around user growth and, 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 and even revenue. And in fact, 2009 was kind of a reckoning around revenue. It's like, are we going to make this thing go? Or are we going to start to go more sideways on the revenue front? And he showed up on January 3rd of 2009 wearing a tie. And this is like, you know, Mr. And we, we, uh, there are a thousand employees at this point or 500. And, you know, this is Mr. Hoodie, right? So the contrast <laughs> is stark. Yeah. He shows up with a tie and he says, I'm wearing a tie today and I'm going to wear a tie every day of 2009 because this is a serious year. And, you know, every fucking day that year you saw Mark wearing a tie. And, you know, that was a really ingenious way of communicating to people at scale. Um, I would say that you just, you know, one of the things that you do, you, you have to, Facebook did a nice job with this too, which is using, you know, they had all these posters all over the company that, that communicated the ethos and the values, right? And that scales really nicely to thousands of people. And it's funny, they yeah. weren't cheesy, right? They weren't like those stupid, like in-flight magazine pictures of nature with like, hey, you know, spread your wings and you can soar forever. Right? It was like, it was shit that really resonated. I mean, they were written by clever writers at at Facebook who, you know, were trying to embody the values. So that's another example, another a final example, and then I'll stop that I've seen companies use, and we did this at Pinterest to some degree, is, you know, TVs and monitors are cheap and pictures and graphics and animations are powerful tools for communication. And you just have those, you can have those all over the place. Yeah, one of the things that I wonder about culture, you touched on this a little bit, that oftentimes culture is a, it's a reflection of the founder and I, I wonder how much of this is emergent. Um, I was talking with Zach Cantor from Steady, and he was saying that his, his theory on culture building is that it's really, it's something that you crystallize. It's not something that you define. You, you memorialize it after it's already happened. Mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not the other way around. Most people think of you, totally agree. you write the culture down. Totally yeah. agree. To support that point, Sam, one of the best ways, and look, this is how humanity's worked uh, 
since the beginning of humanity. Stories and anecdotes are possibly one of the most powerful things. Mm. And those are emergent, right? You don't yeah, have the right, fucking right. stories about the company before you start the company, before you write down the values. You have the stories after. Right. And then you repeat the stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, um, you know, along the lines of one of our values at Pinterest was every problem is your problem. Something along those lines, not exactly that, but it was sort of like, you know, don't, don't point. If you see a problem, like flag it and fix it. Yeah. It's kind of the broken window theory. And, and, um, I told this story at an all hands, maybe we were 500 people, thousand people, and it, inv it involved me and the, and our CTO at the time. And he saw me go and get coffee in the kitchen. And it was, we had, we had coffee in these like big, big, big makers with like a little lever on the top. And I went over and got coffee and it was, it was empty. And it was early in the morning. I didn't think anyone was there and they just walked away. I didn't, I didn't, you know, do anything. And JJ, yeah. who was a, who was an Amazon guy said, Tim, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> that is ridiculous. Yeah. And he, he, he not only flagged it, grabbed me, and this was one-on-one. -on -one. He wasn't trying to embarrass me. No. And we're peers, by the way. He brings me over and he's like, let me show you how to do this. And he showed me how to do it. And, you know, that was, that was a lot of, that embodied a lot of what Pinterest, we wanted to be culturally. And, and it was emergent. And, and that story got told quite a bit. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, it reminds me of a story my my friend Wade Wade Ireland who started Surf Air and he's he's also a lifelong entrepreneur. He was telling me a story when he was doing Surf Air, uh, where one of their values was around bringing joy to the people who fly Surf Air. And he told me a story of there was a flight attendant who noticed that a father and his son were going on a trip for their birthday for the, the son's birthday. She took a picture of them had somebody on the ground at the arrival location print it out and get it framed so when they arrived they had this picture and yeah he he would repeat that story over and over again as an example and that's that's a really good idea I, we're we don't do as much storytelling mm -hmm. around culture and values as we should mm -hmm. i think that's uh i'm going to add that as an action item and you can you know you can cue them up right as you as you see them as you see the stories unfold, you know, you can, you can just put them in a folder. Right. And, and as they, yep. and, and to your point about it being emergent, maybe you look at a handful of stories and you're like, what's the common thing here? Yep. And maybe there is a new norm or values we want to encapsulate in something. Yep. Yeah. This, this ties into another thing. Um, something that I've been thinking a lot more about is, uh, so I did a podcast with Mark Randolph from Netflix. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said, it seems to be a common thing, a theme among uh, experienced CEOs is really indexing heavily on culture fit. And one of the things that Mark said is that uh, culture misalignment is infinitely destructive, like weigh it at infinity, <laughs> which is not the way that most people think about it. Cause they're like, well, he's so talented. Like yeah. you wouldn't want to lose this person, but 
because something that's, that I've been struggling with is our culture is pretty weird. We, we are fully remote. We've really leaned into remote. It is not, everything is asynchronous. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they start working at levels, I think our engineers average something like two meetings per week. And yeah, there's like, there's very, very few meetings, very little communication. And for people who are used to playing whack-a-mole on Slack all day, it can be pretty anxiety inducing to just not have that, not have that constant dopamine hit. It's like a throughout the day. losing internet connection. It's like, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Like people, people will ask like during the first couple of weeks of levels, like, well, what do I do now? It's like work. <laughs> you do work yeah, now. You <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it can be really anxiety inducing, which is one of the reasons why we, our onboarding is at least a full month. For some people, six to eight weeks of just onboarding with no deliverables. Yeah. So I, I wonder, one of the questions that I have is related to cultural misalignment on some of these things. Um, I've seen people who were originally skeptical or would not have qualified as like a strong culture fit initially before we really understood what it is we were doing. Um, they've really adapted and some of them have become the strongest advocates of culture internally. And I'm, I'm wondering what is the, I don't know if you have a good framework for thinking about culture fits and like assessing culture fits and giving people direct feedback about it. And if, if there are people on a team who just don't seem to understand it, how do you get to a point where either they, they are now on board and they get it. Do, do you have experience with people who are not on board with some core values? Like some of ours are treat people like adults. Yeah. Um, we're a team, not a family. Yeah. Disagree and commit. Yeah. Some of these are fairly common. Yeah. But people who don't totally understand those. Yeah. Have you seen people like turn things around and get on board? For sure. You know, one of the examples, which is, this is sort of public, but it's not talked about a lot is, and it's really, it's even more interesting now because he's the CTO at Facebook, but, uh, there's a Andrew Bosworth who's known as Boz. Um, he and I started at Facebook around the same time and, and he's been fairly public about the fact that he was. It's not that he was at odds with a stated value. He was at odds with a common value across lots of companies, which is like, he was, he was heavy handed. He was really harsh. He would sometimes say, you know, things that were inappropriate. I remember him saying like, you know, if, if you don't agree with me, I'm going to punch you in the face, like things like that. And, and admittedly, like put this in context, this was 15 years ago. So yeah. it wasn't like, that was a crazy thing to say, but it wasn't like, you didn't get fired on the spot when you said something like that. Right. Especially at Facebook where the average age is 22 and, you know, you got a bunch of type A people. And, um, but, but I, I say that because he was then, they then tried to put him into a management role. He failed, leadership and management role, he failed. And they kind of put him out to pasture in the sense that it was like, okay, you're back to being an individual contributor. You go in that corner and, you think long and hard about like how you want to be. And he 
I don't actually know the exact process, but I but I, I worked with him closely for years on various things and saw this evolution of this person. And now he is was a CTO of you know the fourth biggest company yep. in the world, and and he is a you know he's a culture carrier, and he's yep. a and he is a you know he's probably Mark's most trusted lieutenant, and uh, that's a pretty big evolution and shift. And I've seen, you know, I've seen people and that's a function of it's a, and I think in this case, by the way, just, and I'll finish the, the anecdote. This is a function of Andrew changing, but also the company changing. And what I mean by that is that his fight in his call it healthy dogma fits the company better in 2021 and 2022 than it did in 2010 when they were a darling, right? He can now use that grit and that fight to shoot out, not in. And, uh, and that's effective. And that's actually what the company arguably needs. Um, the other thing I was thinking of fully separate when you were talking about people who've adapted is I, and I just thought of it as you were talking, I do think there is a way when you interview somebody to screen for adaptivity and possibly cultural adaptivity in a way that may be explicit, right? It's like, how have you adapted your style to fit a job or a role or a company? And then there may be some, subterranean ways to get at it because I totally agree with you and some of your best hires can be ones that you know and some of them reshape the culture in a good way right in a way that you wanted to yeah I wonder so one of the things that we're going to be doing some experimentation with is uh the goal is to have everyone on leadership with an executive coach and then eventually actually everyone on the team working with an executive coach and like it's, even at the lowest level, um, you are, I, you are ahead of the curve and you are, you are going to be, you are spot, spot on. It, 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 that's, I think, incredibly leveraged to do that. Yeah. It, it feels like I was talking with the Vinay, uh, who started Loom about this. Mm. And one of the things that they're putting more effort into is training engine managers into being coaches. And I asked him the question of like, why not just have coaches? <laughs> yeah. But it, it seems like we, I, I don't think most engineering managers want to be coaches. Probably not. And so probably. Yeah. You're right. A lot of them don't want to be managers. Yeah. <laughs> true. Um, Very true. I think it's, I think that is a, is spot on. Uh, Pinterest invested heavily in coaches at the exact level and down through the middle of the company early and it was expensive but i think it was i'm not saying it was money well spent and there were a lot of things pinterest got wrong but i think that was certainly yep. helpful in terms of cohesion etc cetera, etc cetera. i think it was yep. i think it was really good you know one of the values that you guys have that i love uh is we are a team not a family no yep. and 
I've seen companies go down the path of, you know, we're a family and it is, it, it's dysfunctional. In the same way that just many families are dysfunctional, right? For the reason yeah. that you're trapped in a family. <laughs> now, now, I have heard, you know, when people talk about just to counter this value, just to lay the field, even though I do actually violently agree with this value, I do sort of love, you know, you hear about like Lego. Um, and that company, which is a family business, and they do they yep. do uh, attribute some of their success to being a family business because they're like, look, we had to figure it out because we couldn't quit. So there is there is something about being trapped that can create virtue and goodness. But I think on the I, I think not being a family and calling yourself one is a problem and creates yes. massive issues around. If you want to be direct and honest and and hold a high bar of performance, it's really tough. Yep. So I love, yeah. I love that you. I have not seen that. Most of these other values I have seen some variant of, but we are a team, not a family. I think is a really crisp way of communicating what you want to establish culturally. Yep. It's funny because we've seen so many different reaction. Some people react very negatively to it. Yeah. And I can kind of understand it. They say they don't want their relationships at work to feel mercenary or impersonal. And I, I understand that. And and their relationships at levels are not impersonal. Well, what but, if the team does not have mercenary yeah. relationships? Yep. Yep. And like people who play on the same like pro professional basketball team have great relationships. But they're also aware that they're in it for a larger objective. And so if somebody's not performing, you have to be able to replace that person. So that's, uh, yeah, it's the people who get it, I think, really understand it. Yeah. I think that it, it's funny because I've also talked to people who have worked in companies that have this family language. Mm -hmm. And they often talk about how incredibly pathological it is, <laughs> where you you are pressured into doing things that you don't want to do because yep it, it, they, they operate like a team but they pretend like they're a family and it's often really manipulative yeah. and negative yeah yeah there's a similar uh cultural choice that we made at pinterest and around the same time airbnb made this decision and we were the first i think two companies to really do it who were who were high profile and that was to um Essentially, without going into the minutiae, one of the issues that, that can happen with early-ish employees who have incentivized stock options mm -hmm. is it can be really expensive for them to leave from yep. a tax standpoint. And that seemed quite broken to us. In yep. fact, we knew of instances where people were being um, kept. We were keeping people at the company because we felt bad. We yep. didn't want to saddle them with a tax bill or it was basically like pay a big tax bill or walk without any equity for the time that you've worked at the company. Yep. And so we ended up uh, with, a, with, with our lawyers creating something that allowed them to really uh, to walk without penalty. Right. And uh, it's another example of, of, you know, that's that's how a team should be. Those are the mechanics that, that a team compensation should have. It's not how a family would work. 
and it's right. way healthier. Yeah. One of, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious, since I know you think a lot about this stuff is, uh, we're, we've run a lot of kind of wacky experiments to try to test the boundaries of a lot of these things. Like giving everyone an executive coach is pretty uncommon. Um, another thing that we do during the third week of onboarding, because we're remote and async, we, we really want people to lean more into tools like loom, uh, asynchronous video and audio. Mm -hmm. So for the third week of onboarding, people are only allowed to communicate async. in video, yeah, in async video. That's it. It's the only wow. form of communication that's allowed. And it's, it's really uncomfortable because people aren't used to it, but over, over time you do get used to it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the experiments that we've done. Uh, I, I would ask you the question of, uh, what are some crazy experiments you wish you could run on company culture uh, for a company roughly our size that you think would really, we could learn something from? Well, you said crazy. And so I think, <laughs> when I think crazy, I think uh, not accountable for the, the, the fallout. Uh, always, I, and this is the crazy, probably the craziest one I'll no. think of, and then I'll think of less crazy ones, but there's so much consternation around and speculation around compensation, yep. both equity and cash. And I have always sort of imagined this world where it was just on a, it was just on a sheet that everyone could look at. Yep. Yeah. Buffer does that. They're one of the only companies I know of that mm -hmm. has public compensation data. Interesting. We actually had this conversation. So it's by the way, if I started a company right now, I wouldn't do it. I, yeah. I, I think, I yeah. think it is probably creates more consternation than not, but yeah, what's, what's interesting about it, especially for buffer, all compensation data is public at buffer. It's on a spreadsheet on the internet. Anyone can see it. You can go to their website and look at it right now. What it does is it's a, it is a, is a cultural lightning rod. If you're the kind of person who's okay with that, you're going to be okay with a lot of the other stuff that they do. <laughs> totally. And yeah. And so we have this conversation. We have a memo on transparency on what that line is for us. Yeah. And I was pushing for everything, everything public, compensation to public. I don't really care. Yeah. But there were a lot of things like publishing all of our investor updates, yeah. publishing all of our team all hands. Yeah. A lot of people were on board with it. I was the, I was the person wandering the desert by myself, yeah. pushing for public compensation data. Yeah. And I think it's telling that even a company that is as transparent and as open as Bridgewater, the only thing that they don't have public <laughs> it's compensation data. Yeah. It's the only thing. Yeah. So there's probably a reason yeah. for that. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear what Dalio's principles were, right? For not making that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that, that is art that is done today, yeah. but I think still is controversial and it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to you guys, how you guys handle this. Um, and, and this was a lot, I, I give Mark Zuckerberg credit because this was 13 years ago that he really pushed this into Facebook, um, which is that most bonus, most, most sort of compensation gets done by virtue of it's kind of peanut buttered across the company, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the, the spoils get spread, you, you know, kind of evenly. And that's just not, that's just doesn't map 
to value creation, right? Value creation sure. is is much spikier. And it you, you've got these outlier people who create tremendous value. And then you've got people yep. who are half a standard deviation from the mean who create a little value. And, you know, he he to his credit, when when refresh compensation, and this this is stock, right? This isn't cash. Yep. It applies to cash. People who were in the top 10% got six times as much as people who were in the 50th percentile. Yep. And that is, that's still kind of viewed a little bit radical compared yep. with, well, let's give, you know, let's give the top quartile, you know, a, a hundred percent and we'll give, you know, we'll, we'll give them two X and then we'll give the 75th percentile or the top, the second quartile, 30%. It's like, Come on, like yep. it's just not that. Just doesn't mimic how value got created across the organization. So let's let comp reflect it meritocratically. Yep. And I think that's I think that's a critical thing. It is it is hard, and the hard part is that you know, and as someone who you know kind of drifted performance wise between sixtieth percent and you know, I think one time I got ninetieth percent. I was fucking pissed when I was 6% or 50th. And really, it can be very hard for your type A person who probably went to a college with great inflation and has never gotten a B minus or a C plus. So it's a, it's a tremendous amount of work for managers to communicate to someone Hey, you're 60th percentile and you should feel really good about that because look at your, look at the, com- look at your company, look, look at your peer set. Yeah. It's funny. One of the, one of the things that, uh, Netflix talks a lot about is, uh, they, they have a rule, which I think I understand why they have this, but one of their rules is fire adequate performers and I think this is maybe, we've talked about this internally. I think I maybe just have a semantic issue with it because somebody who's performing adequately, you can have high expectations for what adequate means. Correct. But like definitionally, correct. it kind of feels like a false promise. Yeah. I think you're, you're like, yeah, it is semantic. Yeah. 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 But I understand the intent because it's really easy to justify like, no, 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 they're doing, they're doing adequate. They're doing fine. It's hard to get over that hurdle of firing somebody for the purpose of talent density and keeping that bar really high. And so I I think I understand how they got there, which is that it's, it's like anchoring further in the other direction. Um, so we compensate pretty generously, especially in the form of equity, just across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of this, honestly, just because I'm personally quite lazy when it comes to doing actual work. <laughs> and so I, I much prefer having very capable senior people on the team, probably half our senior leadership hires. And that's just because I don't want to have to think about this stuff. So well, and you're going to scale. Um, I mean, that's certainly the, the funny explanation, but you're going to get so much benefit from that scale wise, right? Most people yeah, are probably. blind, not most people, all people are blind on executive hiring. So to be yeah. ahead uh, is going to be, I think will really pay dividends. So one of the other, one of the other concepts that I, I think a lot about um, is 
this idea of, we'll call it cultural entropy. And there, there are, when you look at companies, cultural entropy tends towards lower talent. It tends towards lots of meetings. It tends towards, you can kind of envision exactly the culture. I imagine that's what cable companies live with. It's like they are the lowest entropy state, uh, or sorry, the highest, they're the highest entropy state of a company. Yeah. Like once you've, once you've removed all incentives yeah. for like creative yeah. uh, thought and you have them in a monopoly and you have them there for a long time in something that's highly regulated, like that is the high entropy state. That's what leads so, to a, a, your, your repairman showing up an hour five of a four hour window, right? Yeah. So we've been thinking a lot about corrective mechanisms for this entropy problem. So uh, it's something that I, I learned from Darren. They want people to work more asynchronously. So one of the patterns that they have to fight that is every sixth week is async week. So every sixth week, nobody on the team is allowed to communicate synchronously for the entire week. Yeah. And that's just like, it's a, it's a reminder to fight that culture of meetings where he said, oftentimes people start accumulating more one-on-ones and then they do async week and they realize, oh, we didn't need to be doing these synchronously. Yeah. Let's switch back to async. Yeah. So it's a corrective mechanism. Yeah. Um, we, we often use EAs internally to manually check things. Yeah. It's like one of the things that we have that a point of entropy that we want to avoid is over-classification of documents. Um, something where basically a document might only be seen by four or five people or only the leadership team. And so our EA is once a week, find every document that only the leadership team has access to. Then they post it to the leadership channel and says, which of these can be declassified? And most weeks we have at least a couple documents we can declassify. I love it. Yeah. So what are, what are some like forms of cultural entropy that you see teams tend towards? And I don't know if you have any thoughts around corrective mechanisms for them. Well, I loved the meeting one. And I think this isn't, this isn't a great one, but it's a decent one, right? Force, you know, and we did this when we were a thousand people, like we would just reset the calendar. We just blow up the calendar just goes resets to empty on January one and rebuild as needed. Right. Rebook yeah. is needed. Um, that's a pretty easy one. Um, I think it, it, the problem is by December the next year, you're probably back in the same, in the same place. Um, I think email, I mean, I don't know. I haven't worked in a big company for a while, but it used to be email. Uh, and the state of entropy was, was massive email volume. And that may be Slack volume now, but. You know, I think, I think, uh, this gets a little bit to the async point, but I always thought that it would be useful to have kind of uninterrupted time every morning where, where you weren't even like, you know, that coders want need to be connected, but like maybe there's no email and there's no Slack for four hours. Yep. You know, it's funny, we actually, we have a tool that helps us with that. Uh, the tool is Mailman, mm. the website's Mailman HQ. Yeah. And what it does is it batches all of your emails. Yeah. And only sends them to you at certain times. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really simple tool yeah. and it makes a huge difference yeah. in terms of how personally I interact with email. Yeah. I only get email twice a day. I think at 12 yeah. and at four. I mean, that's, 
uh, and, and look, if you could batch at the, if you could batch at a company level yeah. at the same time, you, you kind of be, and, yeah. and, and then do something with, with Slack. Um, yeah. and then something around, you know, you don't have this problem, but for the people, you know, for, for, uh, in-person culture, uh, you know, we used to have symbols that allowed us to be in an uninterrupted, right? Whether that's headphones on, some people didn't want to yeah. hear headphones. We had like these little, <laughs> yeah. we had this little, I bought people these little caution cones they could put on top of their monitor, uh -huh. meant, like do not disturb, like yeah. context switching for this person. I mean, I, I love the mental model, by the way, uh, cause we just human beings, right? Uh, you know, Cal Newport writes a lot about these things, um, and wrote a book called a world without email, hmm. where he gives a couple of reasonable ideas around how to create cues and batches and so forth. And does kind of imagine a world without email. What, what would that look like? I mean, you could be really extreme, right? Get rid of email. I don't know. I mean, well, I have thoughts on that. I can send you a couple hundred pages of documentation on communication principles. Cool. <laughs> One of them we, we touch on is, is email. Yeah. Email. There are things that email does really well. Yeah. And there are things that email does very poorly. Yeah. And so just understanding those, I think is important. I'll uh, say one more thing on this entropy thing. Yeah. Um, and it's probably most relevant for you as the CEO, but it, others as well. I'd say, I think some of the best executives and certainly this has been documented. Some of the best investors are quite comfortable doing 180s on decisions and opinions. Yeah. And we have this entropy that we've created. I think, I think, uh, our culture, identity, politics, et cetera, have reinforced this notion that we can't, we can't change our view. There's a whole political cultural thing, but I'm just saying on, on a business topic. Yeah. And you can change your view and you probably should. And they've looked at this with, with investment managers, you know, they're sort of like, I have high conviction and I never change my view. Right. And then they look at the ones that really do. Uh, there's a book written called the art of decision-making by, by an investor that talks about this notion of flipping and being okay with it. And you know, you read, you read the jobs, uh, biography. He was, he was sort of quintessential flip-flopper. And so I think that's another thing around entropy. That's just good to be good to be aware of. And, and, and it's a really nice thing to model, right? Because if, if the CEO founder is modeling this, you know, intransigent dogmatic thing, then all your leaders are going to behave that way. And, and everyone's just going to be dug in. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, a quote by, uh, John Maynard Keynes, where he says, uh, when the facts change, I change my opinions. Yeah. What do you do, sir? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. There was a woman who uh, had a podcast for a while. She was trying to find people who changed their minds on really seminal things. Yep. And I loved the concept of it because her, and <laughs> she said, I, I talked to her one time. She said, I'm trying to make having a reckoning or changing your mind on something seminal, the sexiest thing in the world. Because mm -hmm. right now it's, it's not, it's we, it's weakness. No, it culturally. 
Yeah, it's funny. So I, I host weekly salon dinners with usually eight to 10 founder friends. Yeah. And uh, they were all over the place in terms of topic. And we've had some really interesting ones where people have had significant, a significant change in opinion. Yeah. I think a lot of this is the topics are interesting, the people are interesting. Most of this is probably just the people that we bring to these. Oh, you're seeing the, the kinds course of, of the dinner. Yeah. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah. One that was the most surprising just because of the, the shift in mindset was so significant was we did one on uh, anonymous, unlimited political contributions. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> well, what was funny, so we did like a straw poll at the beginning. Uh, everyone was opposed to it, which is not shocking. And by the end of the dinner, every person but one had flipped their position to be in favor when you actually think through the implications wow. of what it would mean to regulate and limit political contributions and remove anonymity, the implications are actually quite problematic in a way that a lot of them hadn't really thought about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, every person but one changed their mind. The only person who had not changed their mind, I think fundamentally, he also doesn't believe in free speech. So like, yeah, that's, it's going to be hard to move him on that. But you know, it's that's super cool. He's, yeah. So yeah, they're, they're really fun. I think a lot of it is just getting the right people in the room. Yeah. Well, you're thinking about, uh, God, all the stuff that really matters. I mean, I think that, I think culture often is, you know, it's under, under invested in early and then you yep. can't, and then you can't change it you, or you, you can, but you know, so many of the foundational, um, substrates are flawed yeah yeah we've had some early conversations we we had a conversation with patrick collison from stripe who mentioned how we asked him broadly speaking like what would you do differently if you could go back to when you were 12 people and he said to paraphrase spend more on culture whatever you're spending now double it double it again and it's still not enough wow so like the single biggest thing to focus on is like really focus on culture at this stage, because I, I think the reason is that if you don't spend it now, you can't spend it later. Correct. Like the, the ship has sailed. Correct. You're kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ultimate leverage of a dollar today, right? It'll, yeah. it'll be useless. If you're successful, it'll be useless in five years. Right. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. So yeah, if you, if you think of any ideas for cultural experiments to run or yeah, I, I will, sorry, I, just quickly, because I, yeah. I, I'm surprised I haven't told this story and it's a good story. And it, yeah. it counters Collison's point, I, I think a little bit, it's, mm. even though I think 99% of the time he's right. When I was, this is almost 20 years ago, I happened to be doing venture investing early, early, early in my career. And I was doing it within JP Morgan and I was doing it right when a CEO transition was happening. So Bill Harrison was handing the reins to Jamie Dimon. And Jamie Dimon is really viewed, I think, as one of the best CEOs in the world. He runs JP Morgan today and, and has guided that company okay. through the financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera. So Jamie Dimon takes over <laughs> and I'm sitting in my cube in San Francisco. And a story starts to percolate in San Francisco. And the story is, which is a true story, that the night before, Jamie Dimon 
went outside the banking, the investment banking building and saw a line of a hundred town cars waiting for people to get done with their jobs and, you know, take them home, investment bankers. So he went car to car and he knocked on the window and he asked the driver, who are you here to pick up? And what time, what time did you get here? And right, how long you've been waiting? And then he called the person and said, hey, this is Jamie Dimon. I'm the new CEO, JP Morgan. I noticed your town car has been waiting for you for an hour. You think this is a good use of company? <laughs> and, you know, the company at the time, it's 250,000 people. Now it's 80,000 people when I was there. And it spread in 24 hours to all 80,000 people. And it changed yeah. the norm around spending. And that's a really unique way to change one small aspect of a culture and a pretty mechanical aspect of the culture. So I do think it can be done. It is, it is way harder, um, but exceptional leaders will find ways through things like that to change the tone.